0: Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. So, I've been looking forward to doing this series for some time. We start a series this morning called Rogue Warrior Poet King. Say that five times fast. It's going to be a five-week series on the life of David. And, um, you know, I just I love David. I, there's just a few people in the Bible that We can all identify with David because we can all see ourselves somewhere in his life. Uh, We're going to talk about his life, and it begins in the 11th century BC. David was a lot of things. He was a shepherd boy. He would become a king. He would ultimately live his life in a very, very violent time. It's almost impossible for us to wrap our heads around just how violent the times were in David's life when you read the Old Testament you have to read the Old Testament From the standpoint of violence and clan war, okay, we we don't It's really hard for us to read the Old Testament and put ourselves in Context, but but that time in his, in world history is is extremely Violent especially, um, you know, there's no other time period like it, especially when it comes to Warfare you see, we can't help ourselves when it comes to ancient warfare. We glamorize it, we we fictionalize it, we sanitize it, and often we romanticize it. And Hollywood has not helped us very much with this. Um, you know, we get movies like Braveheart that takes it to a whole new level. And William Wallace and all the men watch William Wallace and think, "Man, I would give anything to be that courageous and that strong, and you know, have that kind of um, fortitude and resolve." And then Uh, Along comes another movie, one of my all-time favorites, probably top three movie in my list of favorite movies. Uh, I've made my mind up that Casablanca is number one. Any Casablanca fans? Yeah, Casablanca is number one for me. But right behind that is Gladiator. And I watch Gladiator and I just think to myself, man, I want to be like him. I mean, that guy, he's the real deal. But even on Hollywood's best day, there's no way to take us into the world of ancient warfare because you have to smell it you have to fear it it's something that most of us fortunately will never ever really get close to and if we are in a place where we get close to it we probably the men and we will never get as close to it as the men and sometimes the women in the 11th century got to it because when we see war we see it from a helicopter or a drone or a movie jib, or we see it through a movie camera of some kind, but in those days, you saw war over your own shield, with your stomach in your throat. I've already killed one fly today. Hold on a minute. Dag-gone things. It's those lethargic ones, you know, that are just waiting for somebody to put them out of their misery. And I'm more than happy to do it, I really am. You look over the shield with your stomach in your throat. In modern warfare, we kill from a distance. In ancient warfare, you killed at arm's length. You looked into the eyes of your opponent and you could smell their breath. You knew if they'd had something to drink. You knew what they'd had for breakfast. You fought that closely with them. You were so close that you either saw fear or terror Sometimes you would see savagery. Sometimes you would look into the eyes of your opponent and you would see this glazed look and you knew they had had just enough to drink to get them to summon up the courage to dive into war and to scream and yell and to try and kill you. But the worst thing that you could possibly see when you were in warfare looking over your own shield was calm. Because if you looked into the eyes of someone and their eyes were calm, you knew that you were staring into the eyes of a veteran of the shield wall. And if you yourself were not a veteran of the shield wall, the odds of you walking away from that were not good. It would be only after the battle that you would know if you had been wounded. Adrenaline was so full in your system that the adrenaline had to fade away and then you would look down and realize maybe that you had been wounded. And you would be trying to figure out if the blood that covered you was the blood of your own, your own blood, or if it was the blood of someone else. To be sure, you would be covered in blood. It was just a matter of whose. And and if you were, if it was your blood, and you were able to stop the bleeding, the chances of you uh, getting some kind of infection and dying was pretty severe. In fact, in ancient times, the men often fought completely naked because while they didn't understand germs, they understood that if they sustained a puncture wound and the, the implement that made that wound was able to take some of the dirty clothing into the wound, they understood that that could mean the loss of a leg or the loss of an arm or the loss of life. And if your brother in arms to your left or your right lost their courage and went ran away from the battle, that almost certainly meant that you would lose your life as well, And before anyone could come and rescue your body and take you away from the battlefield, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field would feast upon your bloodied flesh. How is that for an introduction to a sermon series? Huh? How about that? Are you ready now? Are we ready? 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Gath uh, Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. So let me put that in perspective for you. That's nine feet, nine inches, okay? Nine feet, nine inches. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, that's 125 pounds. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. This was not a throwing javelin, this was a killing spear. It was about six feet long, had a big point on the end of it, weighed 15 pounds. Goliath more than likely fought from the second rank, not the first rank. In other words, he wouldn't have been on the front line, he would have stood behind the front line and with his long arm and his length and the long six-foot spear, he would pick people off one at a time with that big spear. He was almost impossible to take down. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. Saul was the king of Israel. He was Israel's first king. And what's going on here is back in those days, a lot of times there was an arrangement where you 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 wouldn't just have armies fight each other. They would select a a representative. You would select a representative. And instead of all the armies fighting and dying, you would just basically have those two fight it out. And the winner was the winner of the battle. The other other army would then become the servants of the winning army. And so that's kind of what's going on here. Goliath said, choose a man. And have him come down to me, if he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. I want to highlight those words, dismayed and terrified. Goliath came out day after day. This goes on for weeks. And he comes out and and Israel needed a champion. So they looked to their king and they looked to the king basically for two reasons. Number one, he's the king. That's who you look to. He's your leader. That's who you, you want him to come represent you. Second thing was he was the tallest guy in Israel. And so, you know, it only took a couple of things really for you to become the king. One of them was Saul was pretty good looking guys, pretty handsome and apparently that's enough to get you the gig right there if you're handsome enough. But he was also tall, he was big. And so those two things went into making him the king. So the giant waltzes into the valley, challenges the nation of Israel. You look to your tallest guy and it was the king. The men placed their hope in the king, which is natural and they waited for their king to come out of his tent and to answer the call of Goliath and to fight. That's where their hope lay in their king. And this is where our story begins to intersect with the stories of the Old Testament. Because here is what is true of you and here is what is true of me. We place our hope in and we depend on those, we we place our hope in what we depend on. That's how I meant to say that. We place our hope in what we depend on. It's just what we do. We place our hope in what we depend on. And another way to say it is we place our hope in who we depend on. And when that person in whom we place our hope disappoints us, often the measure of our hope becomes the measure of our disappointment or the measure of our anger. This is why we have the potential sometimes to resent our parents more than anybody else because we place our hope probably more in them than anybody and when someone places a lot of hope in you, there's a lot of potential for you to let that person down. I say this all the time, follow me long enough and I will let you down, okay? I'm not perfect. As a leader, I'm not perfect and if you follow me, I'm eventually gonna let you down. Anytime you place your hope in a man or a woman, the potential for you to be let down by that is huge. And so, you, you know, when I was growing up, <laughs> I didn't place much hope in the couple that lived across the street from us, our neighbors. I didn't place much hope in them. I was nice to them. I was very polite to them. If I would see them out, I would wave and, you know, say hi and, and things like that. Um, but I was really, really polite to the neighbors, which probably just really irked my parents, right? Like, he's not like that with us. He, he doesn't treat us with that kind of politeness. He's, you know, he kind of takes us for granted. You parents get this. Right? You have a son or a daughter, and they just drive you crazy. They're not very respectful, and um, they want to go spend the night at a friend's house, so you, you relent. Let them go spend the night at a friend's house, and they spend the night. You have a night's peace. They come back the next day, and the, the parent that brings them back is just raving about how good, well-behaved your kids are, right? Like, oh, they're just such a ge- little gentleman and they were so polite or, you know, she's such a little lady, I just can't get over how, what a great little girl you've raised. Meanwhile, you're peeking up underneath the ball cap trying to make sure that's your kid, right? Like, did you bring back the wrong one? Wherever we place our hope, that is where our trust is. Saul, in this story, is conspicuously missing. As each day passed, his credibility is slipping away. And as his credibility wanes, the army's hope dies, and it goes away as well. The stalemate between the Philistines and the Israelites really illustrates the fact that God never really wanted Israel to have a king in the first place. That was not his design for Israel. God wanted Israel to look to him as their king because God knew what we now know that wherever we place our hope that is where our trust is and God wanted Israel to place their hope in him in fact about 400 years before this event God established Israel as a theocracy a nation of law administered by judges god would be the king he would hand down the law the judges would see to it that things went the way god wanted it to go and this is amazing especially if you're new to the bible or maybe if you're skeptical of christianity but that this system that god had envisioned for the israelites would put the israelites light years ahead of everybody else because the model that everybody had seen up until this point was you have a, a nation and that nation appoints a king they had just left egypt they had seen that egypt had a Pharaoh and this is what you did they just kind of looked around and and Israel decided that they needed a king too. now this is the 11th century and they complained to their leading authority the person you know probably closest to a king that they had this this uh, uh, prophet named Samuel and here's what happened this happened just a few years prior to what I just read to you a few minutes ago where David and Goliath are about to face off this is just a few years before 1st Samuel chapter 8 when Samuel the prophet grew old he appointed his sons as Israel's leader now Samuel didn't have many years left and he's got these two boys and so he's going to put them in charge verse 3 but his sons did not follow his ways They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. They were corrupt judges. So if there was money to be had, if you wanted to pay for a good court decision, you would pay for it. And these guys would just kind of go wherever the money went. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to Samuel, you are old. Now, kids, let me just stop for a minute and tell you, don't say that. We know we're old. We don't need you to tell us we're old, okay? That's not cool. Um, You don't have to tell us we're old. You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. In other words, all the cool kids have a king All the cool nations have a king. We want a king like all the other nations have. But here's what they forgot. And this complicates the story of the Old Testament. And unfortunately, it still complicates things for the church today. God established Israel for a very specific purpose. And he established Israel for something far beyond Israel. Many years before, God had made a promise to a man named Abraham. And he had said, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless the world. I'm going to do things that the the whole world is going to be dressed and uh, blessed and it's all going to come through you and your family. So God had a very specific agenda for Israel. He wanted Israel to be unlike any other nation on the earth um, and so that in their success and in their wealth, the other people would look upon this nation that was so blessed that had so much and they would say, who in the world is the God of that nation? We want to know more about them. That they would not look to a king to credit a king, but that they would give credit to God. And that people would say, who is this God? Who protects their borders? Who allows their babies to grow up and be so strong and prosperous and smart? And and, and God would, in fact, bless the world through Abraham. And eventually through Abraham, the king in Jesus would come and totally bless the world. Story continues, verse 6. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. So he's gonna have this conversation with God and he prays, and this is what God says back to him in in verse seven, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. That they don't really even realize what they're doing Verse nine, now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Saul, I want you to talk to the people and I want you to explain to them, explain to the elders that this is not gonna be as easy as you think it is. The the king is going to tax you. He is going to take a percentage of your crops. He's going to draft your young men as soldiers. He's going to press your daughters into servitude. And he is going to claim the best land for himself. And yet, in spite of all the warnings, the elders insisted, we want a king. The interesting thing is that the nation's insistence set the stage for one of the most detailed narrative accounts in ancient literature. It set the stage for the story of King David. Israel's second and arguably, as we will see, Israel's greatest king. He was Israel's greatest king not because he was a perfect man. He wasn't. He was Israel's greatest king not because he was a perfect king. He wasn't. He was arguably Israel's greatest king because as we will see, there was something in him that was reluctant. There was something in him that was extraordinarily confident And yet there was something in him that was extraordinarily humble. And unlike the average king, David loved the law. Most kings usually don't love the law. Kings like to be the law. Usually when the king broke the law, the law would change to adjust to the king. Because the king's words were the final words. And yet throughout the reign of David, we discover that David actually loved the law even when the law condemned him. And instead of changing and adjusting the law, David allowed himself to be broken over the law. He did this throughout literature that we we read from him. David wrote throughout the Psalms. He declares that he loves God's law because it was the law God had given his nation. And that conviction provided him with extraordinary clarity as king. And through his reign, despite his power, despite his popularity, despite his talent, despite his success, despite the fact that he is the king, despite the fact that he's handsome, he never lost sight, was never confused about who the true king of Israel was. For many of us, that is not the case because for many of us, success confuses the best of us we get a little bit of success and the next thing we know we're sitting on the throne of our life and once we are sitting on the throne we begin to place our hope in us because we always place our hope in the one upon whom we most depend david the king of israel never made that mistake In fact, we catch a glimpse of this perspective when David is 15 years old and he's a shepherd boy and he's trying to stay out of the way and his older brothers who fought for King Saul, um, we we pick this story back up in 1 Samuel 17 where David and Goliath are about to have their showdown. Verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And here's David, 15 years old. He He doesn't even have his permit yet. He can't even drive himself to the battlefield right? He is a boy. He's he's got no business uh, being in this context. He shows up with a care package from home. He's supposed to deliver that to his three brothers that that fight for King Saul, get a report, take it back to his his father, and that's supposed to be the end of it. But then he hears Goliath's speech. He hears what what Goliath has been coming out and saying uh, every day, twice a day for the last month and David responds, and David is not dismayed, and David is not terrified, we get a different thing out of David. David is offended, he's offended. He hears that Saul is looking for a champion to fight Goliath, and David starts to ask some questions. And the questions, even as a 15-year-old boy that David asks, allow us to see with with, uh, some clarity that, um, that David could see things in a way that nobody else saw them. 1 Samuel 17 verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? And these men of war are looking at this teenage boy and they're saying, you know, why do you ask that? And by the way, what do you mean who will remove this disgrace from Israel? We haven't really seen it that way. You know, what we've seen is a nine-foot-nine-inch giant come out every day. We've seen this as a military operation. we we just, we, you know, we've been trying to figure out um, how this man who comes from, you know, decorated soldier, the, the veteran of many, many shield walls, and he's been throwing down the gauntlet to us every day, and our king, whom we expected to go fight him on our behalf, is nowhere to be found, So we have seen this from a purely military endeavor. What do you mean remove this disgrace from Israel? (laughs) And then David says this, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Nobody had ever asked that question because nobody else had ever seen it that way. Uncircumcised Philistine meant that Goliath was outside the covenant of God. He was outside the protection of God. Goliath and the Philistines were trying to take from a nation land that had been promised by God. Who does he think he is trying to take the land that has been promised to us by God? Well, word gets back to Saul that There's actually somebody talking about going to fight against Goliath. Someone in the army has literally raised their hand and volunteered, and and they they wanna go fight on what is undoubtedly gonna be the last day on earth for them, and so he calls David in to see who it is that wants to go fight Goliath, and when he lays eyes on David, he is completely disappointed. He's no soldier. There are no scars on him. He's never been in a shield wall. He has no idea what he's up against. And he comes to discover that David is a shepherd and he's a younger brother of the soldiers that serve in Saul's army. Saul dismisses David, but David says, well, wait, 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 wait. I'm a shepherd. And and on more than one occasion, my sheep have been uh, threatened. Once I had a lion come and take one of my lambs, and instead of just sacrificing that lamb and getting the other ones off to safety and going back to my father with one less sheep, I went after the lion, and I killed the lion, and I saved the lamb. Another time, a bear tried to do the same thing, and I didn't tuck my tail and run. I went after the bear, and I, sh- I rescued the sheep, and I kept the flock intact, and I took them back to my father all together, and I killed the bear that day. And then we read this, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because, not because I'm a soldier, not because I have all this experience behind a shield wall, not because of any of that. And and why has no one else seen this, David would say? Why, why? (laughs) that's not why, this is why, because he has defied the armies of the living God. Why has nobody seen that? Verse 37, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. There is no confusion for David. He just sees it in a way that nobody else saw it. He had extraordinary clarity, and it was this. An enemy of God is an enemy of God's people. I said that wrong. An enemy of God's people is an enemy of God. See, Goliath isn't just defying the army. Goliath is defying God. And David's assumption was that he would, and he would carry this assumption with him throughout his life. David would rule for 40 years, and throughout that 40 years, even from the time he was a teenager to the time he was uh, a, a king, he wrapped his faith around the idea that the man or woman whose hope is in the Lord need not fear even when there's something to be afraid of. And David said, King Saul, pick me. Choose me, let me go. Nobody else in your army is willing to go. Let me go do what no one else is willing to do. Let me go do what even you are unwilling to do. Here's the interesting thing. Later, as we know, David will become the king. And as king, he was a poet, a psalmist. He wrote Psalms. So not only do we have the narrative of what David did and what he said, through the Psalms we're able to kind of get a glimpse into his emotions and what was going through his head and how he thought. Later on, David would document this incredible perspective. He would write these words in Psalm 25, verse 1. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. David, where is your trust? Is it in your power? Is it in your ability? Is it in your good looks? No. No. David would say, I have placed my trust in the Lord. This is the posture that God desired for the entire nation. And they just wouldn't stay there. They wanted a king. But in their second king, they found a man that understood the perspective that God wanted the entire nation of Israel to have. Indeed, this is a a, a perspective that he wanted the king to have, and this is a perspective that he desires for us to have. God wants us to maintain this same perspective all throughout our life. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. And then he writes something that kings just don't write. He documents something for us that kings generally do not embrace. He says, guide me. David, you're the king. (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) You're the one that everybody looks to. No, David said, guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Back to the story. A 15-year-old, clear-eyed, confident David, and yet in some strange way, he's humble. He makes his way down to the Valley of Elah, and we can only imagine what happened and what's being said on both sides as the Philistines realize this is a boy, (laughs) you know. This this kid has no experience. He has no idea what he's gotten himself into. Is this a joke? Are they making fun of us? Are, are Are they even taking us seriously right now? And laughter broke out all along the line of the Philistines. Meanwhile, it's hard to imagine what the army of the Israelites are thinking to themselves. The soldiers who have been fighting for Saul... They see this boy going to represent them into battle as the, uh, and represent the armies of Israel. And you have to understand that what's going on here is Goliath is going to fight somebody from the Israelite army, and whoever wins that wins the war. It's not like the armies are going to fight. It's just a battle between these two people. So you have this giant on one side, and you have this boy coming down the hill on the other side, and everybody's thinking to themselves, This is going to be a bloodbath, and we are going to end up being servants of the Philistines. Goliath repeats his threats while David waits patiently. And then he looked Goliath in the eye, and he said this, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves lives, that the Lord saves, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And then David killed Goliath and instantly became the most popular man in all of Israel. And he became the most feared man among the Philistines. And then the Philistines made a tragic mistake. They turned and ran. And the Israelite army pursued, and they plundered the Philistine army and they enriched themselves on the plunder of the Philistine camp. And David had done what King Saul had simply failed to do because David saw something that King David or David saw something that King Saul could not see. And so it is for those who hope in the Lord. They see clearly. They act confidently. They walk humbly. They recognize that they cannot control outcomes because there are too many variables beyond their control. People who walk with God, bosses, employers, parents, pastors, students, employees, they wake up every day and they realize, I can't control outcomes because there are just too many variables outside my control. So they learn to 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 lean their life against the one who has the whole world in his hands, the one who controls all the outcomes and all the variables. And they declare with David every morning, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. In you, Lord God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long imagine waking up tomorrow and before you even get out of bed you're making that declaration to god imagine yourself in the midst of great success when all the eyes are on you and you are the smartest person in the room in that moment and you whisper under your breath oh lord in you i put my trust my hope is in you all day long Imagine in those moments when things are not going the way you wanted them to go You did not envision it going this way. It feels as if the whole world is against you It feels like Goliath is about to take you out and take you down and you whisper under your breath Oh Lord in you I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long Lord, I've never been able to control outcomes I have no control over the variables of life. That was David, an imperfect man and an imperfect king. But throughout his reign, he never turned his back on the law of God and the God of his fathers. David is considered Israel's greatest king not because he was perfect, because he wasn't perfect. But what made him so great is he never confused himself with the king his hope even as king was in the lord but in his early years that was not necessarily the case and we will pick up the story there next week let me let me pray with you father the life of david is so rich so full there's so much to learn there's so much to to inspire us to to bigger greater things um Father, he's just larger than life. And it it just, uh, when we see him and we think that we might want to be like David, we think that it's almost impossible for us to do that. But Lord, it's really simple. His faith was in you. He trusted you. He didn't trust in himself. He didn't trust in his ability or his power or his good looks or his his strength. He trusted in you. May we, Father, this week, wake up every single day, pray a simple prayer. Father, I am putting my trust in you in you you're the one who controls the variables you're the one who controls the outcomes and so father we yield ourselves to you in these moments and we ask you to come alongside and help us have victory this week we pray these things in jesus name amen